This is the Victory Podcast. Every week, we'll share an inspiring message about God's grace and forgiveness for you, wherever you're at in life. Your victory starts now. Let us bow our heads and pray together. Gracious Father, you have trained us by your Holy Spirit to be thinking of coming, the first coming of our dear Savior Jesus Christ, the second and final coming of our dear Savior. Send your Holy Spirit that as he comes with us, our hearts, our minds, our innermost beings will be reflecting the truth and putting it into practice. But Father, comfort us this day. Encourage us. For we bring our weaknesses and our frailties with us, but also anticipation. Bless us that we may be blessings to others. And give us that joy that just doesn't quit. In Jesus we pray. Amen. My dear brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus, this morning we have an opportunity to, to talk of one promise, but it's given in two different Bible sections. It's Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6, and it's Jeremiah chapter 33, 10 chapters later, verses 14 through 16. We read them. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise. That's the Lord's appraisal of the section 10 chapters earlier. This is the good promise that I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord our Righteousness. I am assuming that in your home, the countdown has begun. And you know very well that I'm referring to the countdown to Christmas. But what may be different is the motivation, the empowerment behind that anticipation and countdown. For some people, it's the anticipation of <clears throat> receiving presents at Christmas time. For others, the countdown may be more centered on people. We're thinking of family gatherings. We're thinking of social events. The opportunity to enjoy one another. And for some, it's a countdown 
of all of the, the work, all of the tasks, all of the requirements that are fulfilled, the, the uh, obtaining of gifts and the wrapping of gifts and the uh, cleaning of our, our house and planning and tiresome countdown. Well, Advent. Yeah, the word means coming, and it's a cue to Christians worldwide. The countdown for us is usually centered in taking our place alongside Old Testament believers. They would wake up each morning, they would go to bed every night, anticipating the first coming of the promised one, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Redeemer. And they, they focused on those promises that the Holy Spirit gave oh, through Moses and Samuel and David, oh, my goodness, all of the prophets. And that's what, that's what they lived on as their, their staple every day. And we gladly, cheerfully, thankfully put ourselves right in their place. In a, in a certain sense, we're doing the same thing. The only difference is that we are anticipating and waiting for his second coming, but it's the same Messiah, the same anointed one, the same Redeemer, and we are cheerfully taking our place alongside them to look at these Old Testament passages. Here you have the original Christmas countdown. And not only that, but you have the Lord's appraisal of these promises that are given through the prophet Jeremiah. And he, he said there that it's a good promise. Well, because that is so, let's be asking ourselves a question for the next several minutes. Why is this promise of God such a good one? It's a good question. It deserves a decent answer. So why is this promise such a good one? Well, a good starting point would be to remind ourselves of the uh, not-so-pleasant conditions that Jeremiah and his contemporaries were living in. If you want a calendar date, we're talking about eh, 600 B.C. But the really important thing is that the infrastructure of their culture and society was crumbling. Much of it had already evaporated it's gone. Their leaders, now the three anointed offices among the Old Testament people, if you recall, the prophetic office, the prophets, the Levitical priests, and the royalty, the kings. And all three of these were not looking very pretty. We're talking idolatry, we're talking wickedness, we're talking self-centeredness. We're talking me-firstism. We're talking about the failure to meet the needs of the people, a failure to do anything that the Lord has revealed as their charter. And politically and economically, uh, before it was done, they would lose their nation, they would lose their property, they would uh, resort to cannibalism, where the stronger would prey upon the weaker, just to <clears throat> cannibalize them for food. No, we're not talking pretty picture. 
Jeremiah was not even allowed to get married. He wasn't allowed to go to any weddings. He wasn't even allowed to go to any funerals. And that was because he was a walking, talking message that everybody's going to lose everything. It was not an easy life. No wonder he has the nickname, the weeping prophet. Today, sadly, we would say, hmm, I can draw parallels. And right there, the very fact that we can see the parallels and the, the lack of uh, judicial or legislative or uh, administrative expertise, the dissatisfactions of citizens, the economical ups and downs, and then religiously, again, we have self-centeredness, we have idolatry, and we have, like the Old Testament people, too much of this thing called formalism, shallow formalism. And why is that? Well, there's one phrase that I learned years ago that I've always found helpful to remind me of why things are happening the way they are happening. We have been described as a cut flower culture. Cut flower culture. It's a picture, isn't it? You get it. You go to the garden or you go to a nursery and you, you, you want flowers and you want to put them in a vase and you want to decorate the intern, internal part of your home and uh, you cut the flowers. You separate it from its root system. So the moment you have done that, those flowers are dying. But for a time, there's a lot to be appreciative of. They, may, they still look good. They still have the, the, perhaps the fragrance. They, they still have the texture of life. But it's going downhill and it will continue. Our culture has cut itself from the root system that meant the most. Sometimes it's simply referred to as the Judeo-Christian standards. The Judeo-Christian ethic, but it's basically Bible truths. And the moment as a culture we have consciously decided we are going to separate, separate ourselves from the biblical norm and standard, we're a cut flower society. And again, the examples are, are just so numerous in our culture wars that we're in the middle of. So why is this promise such a good one here? That among those people at the time of the prophet Jeremiah, despite their sins, despite their disobedience, despite their wickedness and idolatry, despite their shallow formalism, God is still talking to them. God is still present among them trying to woo and to win their hearts. And that would be our first answer to the question, why is this promise so such a good one. Well, it reveals a good God who loves sinners despite their sin. He is present and accounted for despite their lapses and hardness of heart. If you are like I am, and I believe that is so because the Bible tells me that there is no temptation that has come upon us individually that is not common to all of mankind, you are tempted at this particular moment to say, yeah, I know that. 
Yeah, God still loves sinners. It's so basic. It's so commonplace. What's for lunch? Be careful. And tell me to be careful. It really is a profound, unfathomable truth that God is still after us. Uh, Many examples are given in Scripture and they're given beyond Scripture. But I'm going to use the one of David Livingston. David Livingston, the missionary. David Livingston, the explorer, if you will. David Livingston, when he left his home country of Scotland and the United Kingdom and was being sent on his way as a missionary, and he happened to be going to the continent of Africa, David Livingston heard what people were saying. They were quoting the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, said Jesus. Therefore, go, and as you are going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Those words by the power of the Holy Spirit penetrated and sunk so deeply into David Livingston, he kept on living that truth, expressing it in his daily journals or diary. It never left him. And 18 years after they sent him off, he came back to the United Kingdom, he came back to Scotland, and and they took him to the University of Glasgow where they were giving him an honorary degree, honorary doctorate, because he had already made a name for himself. He had already uh, become a very famous person, but he wasn't, physically speaking, wasn't much to look at anymore. And they all expected him to just stay there and retire and enjoy the rest that he had earned. And uh, the point is that we have an eyewitness of that event in Glasgow. And it tells you an awful lot about David Livingston. Here it is. When Livingston stood, bearing upon his body the marks of his struggles and sufferings, He is received with reverential silence. He is gaunt and haggard as a result of his long exposure to hard conditions. On nearly 30 occasions, he had been laid low by the fevers that steam from the inland swamps, and these severe illnesses have left their mark. His left arm, crushed by a lion, hangs helplessly at his side. A hush falls upon the great assembly, and he announces his resolve to return to the mission field. But I return, he says, without misgiving and with great gladness. Would you like me to tell you what supported me through all those years? It was this. I am with you always, even to the end of the world. On those words, I staked everything, and they never failed. The point is simple yet profound. It does make a difference when by the Holy Spirit and by my conscious, continual reminder to myself, 
I walk with God. Better said, God walks with me. We are companions. During the Advent season, Emmanuel is a word that's used frequently because the prophet Isaiah said it first. God with us, a name for Jesus. It's such profound truth. Let us never take it as commonplace and as basic, even though it is that. It is absolutely marvelous to make a difference in a person's life. Well, with that in mind, let's go to the specifics of this particular promise. It's not difficult. This is not rocket science. It's a lot more important, but it isn't as complicated. In Jeremiah chapter 23, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. Ten chapters later, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise that I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. Obviously, they are the same promise. A righteous branch from the family tree of David will come. He will be royalty. He will be a king. And he will do what is just and right in the land. He won't be self-serving. He won't be incompetent. He won't in any way neglect the duties that are, have the best interests of his people in mind. David, these people remembered... Now, it had been 400 years from David to the time of Jeremiah, but they still remember David. Household name. Because he was a cut above other earthly kings. He had a value system. Reflecting his, the importance of the word and the worship of God in his life. As the writer of 73 known, probably others in addition to that, 73 of the 150 Psalms, David was a man after the Lord's heart. Imperfectly, a recent sermon series here at Victory of the Lamb brought that out very beautifully. Imperfect, and yet he met the needs of the people, the material, the financial, yeah, the social, the political, the economical needs of the people. And they remembered that. But this branch coming from his family tree wouldn't have any imperfection, only perfection in doing what is just and right in the land. So they would remember that and they would constantly and continuously remember, just as you and I do, waiting for him to come again, that he meets our needs. I point you to a New Testament passage that has always been a great comfort to me and of course millions of other siblings in Jesus. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. You know, what, what is especially endearing about that verse is that he's not talking about heavenly treasures. He's not talking about spiritual bounty, although that's reality also. The Philippians had been very generous in supporting the Apostle Paul and the apostolic ministry. 
The Philippians loved their Savior, therefore they loved his word, and they therefore loved and supported the proclamation and sharing of that word through the apostles. But Paul wanted to affirm and assure them of the truth that you and I know, that you simply cannot outgive God. They would never be lacking anything need. They would always have that precious gift of enough. And God would be meeting their needs. And so again, like going back to our, our, our primary question for today, why is this promise of God such a good one? Well, it reveals that good God who loves sinners despite their sin, but it also points us to the good king, Jesus, who meets earthly needs. We will never lack anything from the bounty of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And yet I need more. I, I do need more. And I know that. A righteous king can be very intimidating to imperfect and unrighteous citizens. And so he adds final words to this good promise. In Jeremiah 23, in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Jeremiah 33, in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord our righteousness. Many people mean well, but they fumble the Christian football because they look at Jesus and the only thing that they see there is example or model or teacher or mentor. And they say, oh, he's fantastic, he's wonderful, and I get to follow him. What's missing in that otherwise beautiful set of words? What's missing is the admission that neither you nor I nor they can perfectly follow him. And therefore, an example, a teacher, doesn't do us that much good. We can be in the presence of fantastically gifted athletes that does not make us athletes of that rank. We can sit next to a straight-A student. Now, that doesn't mean that by proximity I get the same report card. And therefore, Christ can be intimidating, but the message that is given here is that he's not just or even primarily teacher, example, mentor. He is substitute. He is the Lord, our righteousness, as the phrase is given here and, and repeated so beautifully. And again, so that we don't miss it, God does something kind of subtle but kind of powerful at the same time. Go back to those final phrases that are used here. In chapter 23, this is the name by which he, the Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus, the king, will be called 
the Lord our righteousness. Ten chapters later, this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord our righteousness. The it grammatically refers back to Jerusalem, Judah, the people of God. What is his name is now also our name and identity. This is who we are, the Lord, our righteousness. Bill Lemmer's not a shabby name, not at all. But he's got another one, you know. There's a walking, talking, living, breathing, the Lord is our righteousness billboard to the world. And whether it's a gym or a Sarah, put yourself in there. And the person sitting next to you, the person sitting back, in, back behind you, every one of you, that is your name, not just Christ's name. It was his first, but he shares and he gives you everything. The New Testament delights in emphasizing this. I'll just give two passages. One, the first one is the one that Pastor Bill used for our benefit just a few moments ago. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God made him, references Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, at the end of that chapter, it is because of him, God, that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I'm not sure if I can say that more clearly. It's, it's there. Nevertheless, I typed in the words, the Lord, our righteousness on the internet. I came across a sermon that a Christian brother had written years ago, and it was posted and still there on the internet. I thought this Christian brother phrased things so well, I'm just going to read it to you. Here we have... The Lord, our righteousness, brings us safety. When our consciences try to convict us by bringing up our sins of the past or our ongoing struggles against sin in the present, and the devil tries his best to get us to question how God could forgive us or accept us, it is the Lord's righteousness that protects us and brings us peace. The devil may bring those sins to our minds, but they are never significant in the mind of our God when he looks at us. Why? Because through faith, he sees only the righteous branch of Jesus, someone who did all the things just and right in our place. On the final day of our life, when the devil pulls up your life's profile certain that he will find more than enough evidence that you belong to him for eternity, the only thing that will show is the perfect life of Jesus. Every decision correctly made, every word lovingly spoken, every thought perfectly pure, every action right in line with God's will. 
Yes, it is only because of the Lord our righteousness that we can be certain of God's love and our entrance into life eternal. So if we go back to our our basic question again, why is this promise of God such a good one? Well, it reveals a good God who loves sinners. It points us to the good king, Jesus, who meets our earthly needs. And it assures us of the good gift of Christ's righteousness. On Thanksgiving Day, I don't know what list of gifts you articulated or specifically identified. It may or may not have had the righteousness of Jesus Christ on the list, but maybe that isn't the important thing. The important thing is that we don't lose sight of it, that it becomes a part of our thinking, our yearning, our rejoicing, and our being comforted day after day after day. Shortly after the end of the Revolutionary War in the United States, in the colonies, a man wandered basically from town to town in New England, homeless, penniless. But one day, someone asked him, this leather strap around your neck and the pouch, the leather pouch, what's that? And the man answered, that is very, very important to me. A very dear friend gave it to me. Well, they opened the pouch and it was a a strip of paper signed by George Washington saying, this man served beside me in the Revolutionary War, and it basically guaranteed a lifelong pension and any other need that he would have. (laughs) He was forfeiting all of that because he was ignorant of it. He couldn't read. Well, there's something even more important. It's, It's Christ's righteousness, and many people that we live with Many people that are around us, many people like, like, like those with Jer- at the time of Jeremiah, they're forfeiting the righteousness of Jesus Christ out of ignorance and sometimes by giving him the, the, the stiff arm, the hardness of heart. Let that never be found among us, brothers and sisters. That is our new name, the Lord, our righteousness. We'll take it to the grave. We'll take it through the grave. And we'll take it to glory with our Father in heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the life-giving Holy Spirit. Amen. We pray. Gracious Father, continue to impress upon us the reality of our blessedness. We see ourselves with our eyes. But with the eyes of faith, we see Jesus and that we are walking, talking, living, breathing reminders and billboards that as righteous people in your eyes, we have the capability 
and the high calling to represent you as we live out our lives. Continue to bless us as we strive to do this with perpetual forgiveness for falling short and perpetual comfort because Jesus did not fall short and we get, counting, get counted with everything that he did. In his name we confidently pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the Victory Podcast, brought to you by Victory of the Lamb in Franklin, Wisconsin. For video sermon archives, more information about us, and to let us know how we can meet you where you're at, go to victoryofthelamb.com.